So, the last few weeks have been pretty interesting, both personally and I suspect collectively. I imagine everyone is anxious one way or another. You're either at your computers reading the latest polls, blogging furiously, that's what my husband's doing, um, checking out the state of your bank account, looking for jobs, maybe some of you, I don't know. Um, There's all kinds of levels of worry and fear in a world that's already moving really fast um, anyway. And in my last couple of weeks, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've taught two retreats and had a family trip to the East Coast that had a variety of events in it, including my husband's 40th high school reunion. And so it it becomes an interesting question, how do we handle all of this? And one, I was just at Spirit Rock yesterday and I noticed you know, there's a sign as you go in that says, yield to the present moment. Yield to the present moment. And then again recently I noticed once again that the Buddha that I have on my altar at home does this. And this, in our conventional way of seeing things, is stop, right? Stop. The mudra, the official mudra in Buddhist iconology is fear not. This is the fearless mudra. So I get kind of interested in how come it's stop in my conventional language and don't be afraid in Buddhist language. And is there you know, could I, could I find a connection between the two things? And I often mention that many years ago I was uh, teaching near Philadelphia, not too far from where there was a freeway, and you could hear the sound of the cars going by. It was a Quaker community, and one morning at meeting, somebody talked about the sound, the incessant sound of the traffic as the sound of what he called the hectic pace of fear. And that stayed with me. I've mentioned it many, many times over the years. And any time I'm in a place where there's a lot of traffic noise in the background, I think about that, you know, about everybody hurrying and so much fear and anxiety present in everybody's life. And I imagine probably everyone here has some level of anxiety and fear. And probably even tonight. If you don't, (laughs) I'd like to meet you. But, you know, I've thought and reflected a lot recently on how much anxiety is there, particularly when I go down fairly deep into my personality. There's a lot that's based on fear. And and as I've talked with people, you know, I've, I've had many friends who've, who've noticed that how much is present in the mind, this place of anxiety. And of course, one of the things that's true is that when there's a lot of anxiety, if we get really busy, you can pretend it's not there, right? It's a great 
denial mechanism to, to get busy. And then the fear is back over here someplace, and, and um, we don't see it. So here we are, you know, at this time of a lot of anxiety. You know, am I going to have enough money? And what about my retirement? And will I have a job? And what's going to happen in the election? And all the stuff that, that is going on right now. And really the question is, so what are we going to do with this anxiety? You, know, you can let it be there or... Or maybe there's something that's more skillful to do with it. So Tan Jeff, or Tanisaro Bhikkhu, whom some of you know, um, says that he sees that there are five elements in fear. And he talks about there being confusion and aversion, some sense of danger, something bad's going to happen, a sense of weakness, that somehow you're not quite enough to cope and then of course the desire to get out of there, the desire to escape and I think most of us know that often, I I certainly know this about me that it's one of the mind states that it's not easy to be skillful around you know. and often when the fear comes up, what do we do? We react we do something in a very reactive way. We sometimes move too quickly. We make decisions too fast. And then, of course, the whole situation is often worse. It's not so often that we make skillful decisions under those circumstances. And, you know, if the fear is there and, and there is that sense of danger, and we certainly don't like feeling inadequate and weak in the face of that. That's not a very pleasant experience. Um, and we don't like being confused, at least I don't. Um, and of course, most of us really do want it to change, want it to get out. Now, sometimes, of course, there's real danger. You know, there are things that we really ought to be afraid of. And so that's the place where the truck is coming towards you or there really is a mountain lion or someone really is about to mug you or rob you or the other car and the freeway is being erratic and some fear comes up and you have to do something really fast. It's important to get out of there. Um, And we do. And so it's not that... it, It isn't that we shouldn't experience a sense of danger or even in the current economic situation that's happening all around us. You know, having some sense of danger in the situation is, is quite possibly useful. Um, because, of course, if you get complacent, that's, of course, the other, one of the other directions that we can go, that leads us into difficulty as well. So, mostly, it's the confusion and the aversion that create the problem around fear. So, the confusion comes up and the aversion, and we don't see clearly under those circumstances, and we don't have a sense of stopping to consider what needs to be done here, what's skillful, and we certainly don't like the experience that we're in anyway. So one of the things that's interesting is that we often feel like we have to react. We have to do something in a hurry. And... um, and actually, time is not so much of an issue. And um, Quite some time ago, I read a really interesting account by Oliver Sacks, who writes a lot about neurology and, and how the mind works. 
and and he talked he was exploring what happens to people when they're in t- some time of of really serious danger maybe even mortal danger and people who have these life-threatening experiences often report that in in the middle of that experience there's a, a real sense of expansion of time it's like time stops doing its normal thing or we don't perceive it in in our normal way and and there's quite a bit of time in which to make decisions or to do what needs to be done and certainly I I was as I was looking over my notes for this talk tonight and thinking about it I was remembering my the accident the car accident that I had a year ago and it was very interesting because in the moments that the accident was happening I realized that actually happened that there was this kind of amazing time when the thought went through my mind oh I'm having an automobile accident and there, it seemed a really really long time and I don't actually think it was I think it was just a matter of seconds as I went off the road and bumped into the pole and tipped over and um and many athletes who work at a very high speed also know this, that there's a way in which um, it's possible to make very, very quick decisions in a very small amount of time. So, so we don't necessarily need a lot of time in order to see clearly. But we do need to be able to see clearly. So one of the stories that I came across and thinking about this is one of these wonderful Jataka tales and the Jataka tales if you remember are the stories of the many many lives of the Buddha the sort of mythical lives of the Buddha as this mind stream that became the Buddha sort of trained to be a Buddha and, and in these stories sometimes the Buddha is born as an animal and sometimes he's born as a person Unfortunately, he always seems to be born as a man or a male animal, but we, we don't need to go there. And that was part of the, the times in which these stories were written. And in this particular story, he's born as a lion. And um, so he was the lion, and he was you know living in a forest where there were lots of other animals who also lived there. And in that forest, there was also a hare, a little rabbit. And um, the rabbit one day was sitting under a tree that had a lot of fruit on it. And while he was sitting there, he the thought came through. One of these random thoughts, you know, that happens sometimes when you're sitting around under a tree just minding your own business. And the thought was, if this earth should be destroyed, what would become of me? One of those thoughts. And at that very moment, a piece of fruit fell down from the tree, plump, and landed on a nearby palm leaf. And the rabbit thought, the earth is collapsing. The earth is collapsing. This story may begin to sound a little familiar. (laughs) And he leaped up, and he began to run away without ever even looking behind him. And so another rabbit saw him and said, why are you running away? And the little first little rabbit said, oh, don't ask me, don't ask me. 
And the second one said, what is it? What is it? Kept running after him. And the first rabbit said, the earth is breaking up. And of course, then the, the two rabbits ran on, and then another rabbit joined them, and then pretty soon there was a deer and a boar and an elk and a buffalo and a wild ox and a rhinoceros, a tiger, a lion, and an elephant. And so when they all asked, what did this mean? They were told, the earth is breaking up, and they all began to flee. And pretty soon, according to this version of the story, this host of animals extended to the length of a full mile. So when the lion, who was the bodhisattva who would ultimately, many lifetimes later, become the Buddha, saw this flight of it and heard the cause of it, and he heard that the cause was that the earth was coming to an end, he kind of scratched his head and he said, the earth isn't anywhere coming to an end. So surely they must have misunderstood the sound. And so he decides he will save their lives. And of course he stops them and he asks, why are they running? And they see the earth is collapsing. And then he says, who saw it? And then you know how it goes. The elephants saw it and then the elephants say it. But the lions know, and the lions said, we don't know. The tigers know, and the tigers say, the rhinoceros knows. And it goes all the way down until finally he comes to the little rabbit, all the rabbits, and they say, that one, you know, that rabbit. <laughs> and that one, you know, we've, we've heard that. That one. And, and so the bodhisattva says, is it true, sir, that the earth is breaking up? And the rabbit says, yes, sir, I saw it. I saw it. And he said, where? So they go back. And, of course, you know how the story comes out. The lion shows him that it was the fruit and not the earth. So we know the story, right? It's a little different in the Buddhist world. It's rabbits and not chickens. But, um, <clears throat> you know, the sky is falling or the earth is collapsing, whatever it is. Um, and, and it's a story of how we something happens and we don't see it clearly, Right? The sound. I mean, how many times, I won't ask it about you, how many times did I, as a child, lie in bed at night and hear some creaking and know that it was something, you know? As I was older and sometimes alone in the house, I was sure, you know, there was someone in the house. And when I was littler, it was things under the bed or whatever. And we've all done that. You know, we've done it almost exactly like Chicken Little and our rabbit. So, Tan Jeff, in, in his talking about Pierre, he says, although aging, illness, and death follow inevitably on birth, delusion doesn't. So this is very good news. It's not inevitable that we are deluded, and it's not inevitable that we don't see clearly. So really then what we're invited to do is to strengthen the mind so that we perceive really clearly what we need to see, any danger that's there. And so there are, among all of the lists, there's a list that's sometimes called the five strengths, which is really worth considering just a little bit when we come to this list. So conviction and persistence and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. So it's really helpful to to ponder them a little as we look at how are we around these 
fear states. And so conviction understands that our actions really have consequences. We really trust that. We begin to see it. We're convinced about it. And so it's important, you know, to to look at how we respond to any situation, that we don't want to create any further harm, that that because if we create further harm, then we get the consequences of those actions. And um, and it's also that that conviction about the actions and their consequences also what is what allows us to stay in uh, some sometimes a fairly dicey situation. And I think it's also what really allows us to have courage that that we know that if we if we act in a way that's wise and skillful, even if it might cost us something, that's sometimes what we want to do and or that we want to um, do the action that will ultimately have good consequences. Really important to remember here that sometimes really courageous actions look like the result is disastrous, right? All those stories you hear about people who do something very courageous and then they lose their lives or something difficult happens. But the understanding is that the reverberation of goodness goes on out. Um, and so we really we're, we trust that being wise and skillful is really important. We have faith in that. And we trust that we want to respond in a way that doesn't harm. And so one of the things that the suttas point out over and over again about fear is that one of the best ways not to be fearful is to live in a way such that no being has any reason to fear you. Because when you live in a way that no being has any reason to fear you, then, of course, you create a great deal of safety for yourself because there's much less likelihood that, that something difficult will happen. It's not 100% because, obviously, you know, sometimes you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's definitely a big step towards being able to live without fear. And so all of this needs to be supported by our practice, by our practice that requires a great deal of persistence, that develops our mindfulness in our presence, and and develops our concentration. It is nothing that says that somehow you're just supposed to be able to not be afraid, that it's some easy, semi-miraculous kind of thing, you know. And so the little rabbit, like Chicken Little, really believed his fear, you know. And unfortunately, he hadn't ever been to a Vipassana sitting group, and he hadn't studied, you know, Buddhist mindfulness practice. And so he didn't know anything about his mind. All he knew was that this he'd heard the sound, the earth was falling apart, and he believed it, and he ran. Um, but the Buddha the lion who became the Buddha ultimately in the story has that same function doesn't he as, as that function of waking up and he says look the earth isn't falling apart look pay attention see the earth isn't falling apart it's the fruit so initially what we see actually is that we're afraid And that may not feel like a really big step, 
But actually, it is. It's a really important place in this process when you suddenly go, oh, my mind is filled with fear. Because once you see that the mind is filled with fear, of course, you can take a step back and go, okay, now what do I want to do? I don't want to react. I don't want to run off. The earth is falling apart. The earth is falling apart. I want to notice that I'm afraid, you know. And we can begin to see the mind state of fear, and we can begin to see that we're confused. It's really interesting, because there is a place that isn't caught in that confusion, that says, oh, there's confusion and aversion, and I don't like it, and I'm afraid. And and so then that's that place. There actually is a wonderful kind of thing that begins to happen when you realize that your fear is, if you will excuse me, just a mind state. It's just a mind state. The danger may be real, but the fear is a mind state. And when you understand that the fear is a mind state, then you don't have to, it's like a wave that's going through. And many times, if particularly if you sit like a long retreat or something like that, and there's you have a chance to sit sometimes with these experiences, you begin to see that there's this wave of fear that goes through, and then it subsides. And then you can do what you need to do. Or at the very least, you can act skillfully without getting caught in the wave. Maybe it's a bit like surfing. You could probably think of it like that. So it's really pretty inspiring to begin to think about this, that if we train the mind well enough, then, and with enough persistence and enough focus, then it really does bring us to the place of wisdom where we begin to um, see more clearly and to trust our ability to act more skillfully. So at the end of the story, there's always a verse in these things. And um, So the whole verse says, Alarmed at sound of fallen fruit, a hare once ran away. The other beasts all followed suit, moved by that hare's dismay. They hastened not to view the scene, but lent a willing ear to idle gossip and were clean distraught with foolish fear. They who to wisdom's calm delight and virtue's heights attain through ill example should invite such panic, fear, disdain. So it's really saying, you know, I really like the phrase wisdom's calm delight, that there's that place where when we see clearly, we really come to wisdom's calm delight, and that allows us not to get so caught in the fear. So then, you know, then we begin to see all of the things that one always does see with wisdom. We see the impermanence of the situation, we understand that it will change, you know, that all of the difficulties around us will shift and something else will happen after a while. We begin to see, as I think we're certainly seeing, if you ever wanted a lesson on greed being the cause of suffering, (laughs) we have had it in recent weeks. And so we certainly get to see that. And the fear, of course, where is the fear always looking? The fear is looking out there, right? It's ahead. The fear is rarely... Jack Cornfield used to like to say, you know, the fear, the bear has 
you by the elbow, you know, his teeth wrapped around your arm. And you're not actually so worried about the bear having his teeth around your arm at that moment. The thought that's going through is, what happens if he gets my head? You know, so it's always the next step ahead. And when we actually bring ourselves back just to this very moment, it may feel a little dicey, but it's usually at least workable. At least workable. And we're here in that moment. So, you know, I look at my altar and I have my Buddha who is saying, stop. I could just as easily make it have a stop sign on my altar. <laughs> but I like it that it's the Buddha. And, and that, that stopping reminds me of that place where it's so important. I mean, the rabbit didn't stop, right? And Chicken Little didn't stop. And that place where it's so important to stop and come back to the breath and come back to the body and come back to the present moment. And in that moment of stopping, that's the place where we're not so caught by fear. So I think I'll stop there and see if you have questions or comments or wonderings about your own fear and anxiety. But I can't solve any economic issues. <laughs> what happened to the rabbit? What happened to the rabbit? What? Was there an angry mob after him? Was there an angry It doesn't say, but since since the Bodhisattva in the form of the lion was there, I suspect he was taken care of. In the story the lion gives him a ride back to the to the tree where the fruit fell. Yeah. Please, Isabel. This reminds me of several years ago a teaching that um, you gave me, and it had to do with fear around um, possibility of a serious illness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was kind of happening in a recurring way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it happens, you know, when you've had cancer, and and um, you, you know, one of the things that really struck me is that. The fear will be there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my idea was how do I prevent the fear? Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful. Yeah. Because then there was no fear of the fear. Yeah. yeah. The fear is conditioned. Yes. Yeah. And then the, the other part was where you said just hold it mm-hmm. and take care of it. Mm-hmm. And I've passed it on to a lot of women. Mm. Um, who have dealt with illness and it's just a wonderful teaching because it just turns the whole thing yeah. around yeah. and instead of the fear getting hold of you you just embrace yeah. the fear yeah. and then it just and it often subsides right. for a while I mean you begin to see that, that it um, under those circumstances and I've, I've had a similar experience myself where the fear comes through in a way and you know, I'm planning my funeral and surgeries and all kinds of things. And then 20 minutes later, it's like, oh, okay. And then another big wave will come through. And maybe it lasts longer, you know, but then it goes away again. And so it keeps, it's that place of understanding that it's going to do that mm-hmm. and to hold it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? 
Please, my. I was thinking too about fear um, regarding illnesses. In this case, I've had some that is my husband who is the one with the illness. And when I get in that place where the fear is clutching me, then I'm not able to really be effective, to be mm-hmm. helpful. And when I'm doing my practice and taking a step back, getting myself relaxed, then he can be more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And we can have our good days and we have our bad days too. But at least when things are good, it's not like we're crouching under this horrible weight mm-hmm. that's hanging over us mm-hmm. that has been helpful for me is to when the fear comes is to just be gentle with it you know often when we're afraid you're afraid you realize you're afraid and then what often you get annoyed that you're afraid it's wrong you know and so there's a whole lot of judgment and so then not only I mean there's all that aversion to the state of fear and really, it's a it's it's it is a conditioned mind state. It's conditioned by our past experience. It's conditioned by what we know about a particular situation. As we said, sometimes it's wise. It's useful to be afraid, and some and some sometimes it's certainly understandable. Like if you're ill, and so there's a way in which you instead of pushing it away, you kind of take it in and hold it. And just let it be there, and allow, and, and kind of be present with it in a way that's gentle and soft, instead of prickly and pissed off. Instead of necessarily trying to push it away. Yeah. Oh no, not pushing it away at all. Just allowing it to be there. It's like, oh, here you are. Okay, let's. We'll sit here together, and. I think the image that you had used at that time was. I'm glad you remember this much better than I do. <laughs> well, um, you know, it was a pretty strong teaching for me and um, was the mother holding uh-huh. the baby yeah. that you do see in a yeah. lot of different yeah. cases. And, and in that way, because there is that such vulnerability about yeah. the fearful yeah. state. And so that, you know, embracing and holding right. and taking care of it really relieves the, that, that feeling. And often those mind states feel very young. You know, so there is that sense of, I mean, if you had a young child who was really afraid, you would hold them. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's young Michelle or young Mary Grace, you know. Hold them. Her. Penny, please. One thing I read recently in the book by Tara Brock on radical acceptance. 
when she talks about um, hold, um, being aware of what's going on in your body and mm-hmm. feeling the fear and being present with that. And that's what I've heard when you say holding it, being it like this. I imagine just holding it with an awareness of the body and where where do you feel it in the body and to hold that area with kindness and compassion and to also say, oh, this is what it feels like to be a human being and be afraid. Yeah. And really be, feel, feel overcome with fear. Mm-hmm. And that's been really helpful to me to really, to really just be present with the breath and with the body as those waves of fear come. Okay, maybe enough. Let me make a few announcements, and then I think maybe we're going to chant a little bit tonight. So, um, there is out on the table a stack of brand new copies of the Inquiring Mind. Some of you get them in the mail, but if you don't, please take one. Um, It's got lots of great articles. This one's on the heavenly messengers, so it's on sickness, old age, and death, some of the things that we're afraid of. Um, So take one, take it home, read it, and enjoy. Um, There's a couple of things that are happening soon that I really want to stress. One is next Wednesday we are having our first evening in which we're celebrating the Buddhist teachers of Santa Cruz. So we're going to have a whole series of teachers on different evenings of teachers from other lineages other than this one. So the first teacher next week is a woman whose name is uh, the Venerable Tenzin Choki. She's, I knew her a while back as Petra McWilliams. Um, she's a nun at Land of Medicine Buddha. She's a great teacher and a very funny being, and I totally recommend her to you. And so she's going to talk about her lineage and her style of practice. I will be here to facilitate and also to help field questions about, well, how is her practice different from our practice? So um, I hope that a number of people will come. There'll probably be an email blast about it later um, in the next few days, but it will be at 7 o'clock here Wednesday evening. So come if you can. Um... I just want to underline uh, two things, actually. I want to underline Bob's class on Monday evening that just began, but I imagine he would let you in if you appealed, on the 32 parts of the body uh, meditation training. He and Marcy and I just taught at Spirit Rock uh, for five days um, a couple of weeks ago on the 32 parts of the body. It was enormous fun. He's a fabulously good teacher, and this is a very interesting practice. It sounds a little weird, but I would recommend it to you. Um, It's Mondays at 7 o'clock. And also, just to remind you that every Thursday at 5.30, Marcy is teaching her Qigong class in here at 5.30, and that's also a really great practice of mindfulness of the body. Um, And just to mention that um, on the 26th, which is Sunday, Bob's also teaching a day on mindfulness of death. And um, there's flyers out now for a weekend way ahead with Donald Rothberg um, called Conflict and Equanimity. So you might want to pick one up and take a look at it. But that's not until um, well into November. So I think... 
That's all the announcements. Anything that anyone else has? Yes, there's a bell place. Um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship is co-sponsoring on Saturday, November 1st, a meditation to uh, promote peace. It's a pre-election meditation to promote peace, compassion, and generosity. Ah, and no candidates. <laughs> and that will be at the um, Mission Plaza across from Holy Church at 11 o'clock from 11 to noon. So please join us. Bring a cushion or a chair, sun hat, and be there holding. Good. We could use it before the election, I think. <laughs> Anything else? All right, so Michelle, would you lead us in a little chant of some sort? Yeah, come up here because you do it. I think you'll do it better. Grab a cushion or whatever. Um, so we'll do a little chanting, and then we'll have just a very, very, very mini loving kindness. English, English for Yeah, sure. Whatever your choice. Okay. Um, so this is not really so much a chant as, as more of a song of the um, Bodhisattva vows. Um, so I'll sing it first and then we can do a call and response and then we can all sing it together. I vow to wake all the beings of the world. I vow to set endless heartache to Every wisdom gave. I 
This is part of our agenda about getting a few more melodic Buddhist chants going. So, so take just a moment, take a breath, extend goodwill to yourself, gratitude for being here this evening, for the energy that brought you here. Extend your goodwill around the room to all of the people here who help to support your practice. Then let our goodwill reach out to all of those beings whom we just vowed to help wake up. All beings, all of the beings we know and love. And then all beings everywhere, extending our goodwill, our kindness, our compassion to them. And then we gather up all of the blessing, all of the merit of our practice here this evening. And we offer this merit for the benefit of all of these beings that all beings may be happy, that all beings may be peaceful, and that all beings everywhere may come to a complete end of suffering. So thank you very much. One last announcement, actually. Besides the talk on Wednesday, Thursday, Carla is going to teach here with me and she has some special Halloween something up her sleeve. <laughs> so you might want to come to that too. So please say, take time to say hello to one of your neighbors, preferably one you haven't met before. But anyone will do. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.